Let's bow together. Father, again, we come before you. We praise you for uh, what you've done for us in sending your son, Jesus. And Father, as we look into your word, I do pray that our hearts would be ready to receive your truth and that it would work in our hearts that which is pleasing and glorifying to you. Pray you would bless this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Scripture is quite clear that those without the Lord have no hope. We know in Ephesians chapter 2 that those apart from Christ are without God and without hope. We know also that before we came to Christ and all who don't know Christ, were we were once hateful, we were once uh, lustful, we were just like everyone who didn't know Christ. So we have a world full of hopeless and hateful people. And we are a remnant that has been saved out of that. And so we want to look at what happened. And what we're going to see is that it's because of the grace of God that has appeared that the hopeless and hateful can have salvation. So turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 14, but really verse 11. We're also going to flip to Isaiah 53, so if you want to get a a heads up on that, you can flip there too. I have a lot of scriptures to read and share, so feel free to just listen. I'd prefer that uh, you listened rather than missed it while you were flipping, but if you're a good fast flipper, that's okay. (laughs) So whatever is best for you. So in Titus chapter 2, uh, just a little context to this book. And I, where did I put my glasses? I just had them a minute ago. There they are. When you get older, you need more than two eyes. You need four eyes, right? That's, uh, <laughs> no, thank you very much. Let me share a little bit of the context of the book of Titus. Uh, we know that the Apostle Paul is writing to his true child in the faith, and trusted companion Titus. And the Apostle Paul has indicated in chapter 1 that he has left him behind in Crete to set in order what remains and to appoint elders in every city. Titus was left behind in the Mediterranean island of Crete and given instruction, and he was to appoint elders. But not just any men, these were men who were to meet the Christ-like qualifications that God through his Spirit brought forth in the Word. They were those who met those qualifications, Christ-like men, who also would hold fast the faithful word and be able to exhort and refute those who contradict. Then latter portion of chapter 1, we see those contradictors. Paul gives a a picture of them. They are those who teach things they should not teach. They are those who upset whole households. They are those who must be silenced. They are worthless, disobedient, holding to a form of godliness, yet denying its power. And they are truly worthless for any good deed. And it's from that warning that there needs to be leadership to protect the body from those bad guys that he moves to chapter 2 in which he speaks things which are fitting for sound doctrine. That's what Titus is to share. And he gives doctrine concerning how we as believers are to live. Older men, older women, uh, younger women, younger men, uh, slave master, the work relationship, how we are to live the Christian life. And then it's from that point... He shares this statement, for the grace of God, verse 11, has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The way that we are able to function rightly is because God's grace has appeared, 
bringing salvation to all men. And what does that mean? What does it mean? God's grace has appeared. What is that? Well, let's take a look at our passage here. And again, we're just really going to look at verse 11, but I'm going to read through to verse 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. This is a great passage. This is a great portion of truth. As all the Bible contains complete truth. It is God's word. Now let's get a brief overview. I want to look at these four verses first and then we're just going to go back to verse 11. Just a brief overview because it really does tell us what's going on here. But we don't have time to look at all four verses or five verses. So notice, first of all, we see that man is in need of salvation. Look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession. The term redeem means to pay the price for something, to set it free, to liberate it. We need to be set free from our lawless deeds and the consequences of those lawless deeds. We need to be set free from the eternal consequences of God's judgment. We need to have the price paid for that. And then we need to be cleaned up. We need to be purified. And that's uh, why Christ gave himself for us. Jesus came, as we'll see, to die for our sins. Paul shares in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For I delivered to you, verse 3, of first importance of what I received, also received, that Christ died according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, excuse me, died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to see us, and then the twelve. First most important, that Christ died for our sins. He gave himself for us to pay our sin debt, as we'll see. We know in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. That's what Peter says. He appeared for the sake of you. That's speaking of uh, people. That's speaking of us. Appeared for believers. He appeared for those he would save. He appeared for us. And so in our passage, we have an overview of salvation, past, present, and future. And we're going to look at the past part, but we'll look at the overview first. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That's the past. That's the, the offers there, as we'll see. But that same grace, as we see in the person of Christ, is present tense, verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, God in this present age. That's the Christian life. Saying no to this and saying yes to this. No to this and yes to this. That's what it is. Saying no to yourself and saying yes to the Lord. Right? And allowing his word to work in us. And then we see, ultimately, there's glorification. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of our glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus Looking for him, because when he comes, we're going to be made like him. Our bodies of death will be taken care of. We will be glorified. So we have the overview of salvation, but I want to focus on the first portion here. Verse 11, for the grace 
of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Men and women are messed up. People are messed up. There's hatred, there's evil, there's sin. We've seen it this week. We see it with lots of different things. You know what I'm talking about. Sin and evil and, and, and wickedness and, and murder and hate and, oh, terrible. But here we see the grace of God has appeared. Notice he begins with the word for, okay? That means it doesn't stand by itself. If I say, for, I came to church today. You go, yeah, what else? You know, right? You want to know what else? How it's connected, right? Well, it's connected to how believers can live rightly. How you, older women, older younger women, older men, younger men, uh, in our workplace, how we can live right for... The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. You've got to get saved first. And then after you're saved, that same Savior works in you unto the point of glory. That's what's going on. And so here we have this statement, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now we know, as we will see, that not all are saved. Scripture is very clear about that, that there are those who reject the offer of salvation. So it's not saying God's grace came and everyone's saved and we're good to go. It's not saying that. It's saying the offer is there to everyone. Now, what's interesting is if you look at this uh, in the Greek, you would see ha charis tu theou. You would see the grace of God, and then you have a modifier, a, a, an adjective. I hated English, but I learned it, learned it when I went to seminary, fortunately. And I'm thankful for it. I understand a little bit more, right? Uh, we have this idea. In our passage, it says, the, the grace of God bringing salvation, you know, of God has appeared bringing salvation. But literally, you could say this, the saving grace of God has appeared. Now, they've translated the grace of God bringing salvation. That's a good translation. But it's literally the saving grace of God has appeared. That's a great statement, isn't it? The saving grace of God has appeared. This term uh, appeared uh, comes from the Greek word epiphany. Epiphany. Uh, epi meaning upon, phino means to shine, to shine upon. Epiphany, that's where we get our word, right? We have that word in English, epiphany. I had a epiphany. I saw the light. I figured it out, right? I had an epiphany, whatever it might be. But here it speaks of light shining upon. And here we have the grace of God shining upon. It has appeared, it has shined forth. It has been illuminated. It has been, it has come forth and it is seen. It has appeared. The saving grace of God has shined forth. It has appeared. And it's also in a tense in Greek, which is a completed action in the past. It's not coming. It's not going to happen. It has already happened. The saving grace of God has appeared. It's already happened. It's shined forth. And so with that in mind, we look down and we say, well, what is this saving grace of God? What is it? Is that, is that Jesus? Is it something else? What is it? It just says the saving grace of God. Well, the context here really helps us. If you look down at verse 13, we see looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. That's a future appearance. That's a future shining forth. And then look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us. That's past, okay? 
And then uh, we see here, it's the great our great God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave himself for us. It's in parallel. It's in parallel to this saving grace of God has appeared. Look in Titus chapter 3, go to chapter 3. And we see this, what I mentioned earlier about how we were and how the world is. You know, uh, verse chapter 3, verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But we look out in the world, some are, some, it's obvious they're hateful and hating, some are not so obvious, it's pretty sneaky, right? But it's the way we were, right? But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind epiphanied, that's speaking of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we had done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing, regeneration, and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out richly through, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It is God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, that has appeared. It is God, our Savior, who is being spoken of as the saving grace of God. The saving grace of God. Uh, it is Jesus Christ who appeared. Listen to what Zacharias prophesied concerning John the Baptist. Luke chapter 176. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on and prepare, you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways to give his people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins. That's the key of salvation, by the way. Because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us to epiphany, to shine on us. The grace of God, the saving grace of God has shined on us. It has appeared. John chapter 1, verse 4 in him was life, and he was the light of all men, and the light shines into darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came that he might bear witness of the light. This was There was a true light coming into the world who enlightens every man. The grace of God has shined upon us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's saving grace manifest. He has appeared. God's saving grace has manifest in the person of Jesus. Now you say, okay, I get it. I praise the Lord, but what does grace mean? What does grace mean? Well, you know, we have a lot of acronyms in the evangelical community, you know, quick definitions, you know, whatever it might be. God's unmerited favorite, Christ, God's riches at Christ's expense, you know, or whatever those things. That's true, but it's not the whole story. It's not the whole story. The term grace, charis, in its most basic form, speaks of an unearned gift. An unearned gift. Favor, non-notorious favor, favor bestowed freely as a gift, never in return for work or merit done. It is unmerited favor. And in our passage, this unmerited favor is modified by the term saving. 
the saving unmerited favor of God has appeared. The saving grace of God. Grace is that which God, one writes, does for mankind through his Son, uh, which mankind cannot earn, does not deserve, and will never merit. We don't deserve salvation. We deserve it. No, we don't deserve it. God loves us. He's gracious. He's a gracious God. And his grace has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He says later on in verse 16 that grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. You want to see what grace is? You want to be gracious? You look at Jesus. You look at him and you look at his example and you allow him to abide his, by his spirit in you and you abide in him and you will be gracious. The grace of God has appeared. Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, obviously God the Son in eternal glory being worshipped by angels day in and day out, he left that to take on human flesh, to die for our sins, to be, to be uh, led to the cross to be uh, nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, but according to God's perfect plan. He says he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. That's grace. That's grace. It's all at his expense. He did so. You know, God is rich in mercy. Ephesians 2, verse 4, but God being rich in his mercy and and his, because of his great love, which he loved us, even while we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been, sa- have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places, as Ephesians 2, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved by faith, or through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So God's saving grace has appeared, and this appearance is for all men. It has appeared to, unto all men. It's a completed action. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Here we see uh, when God's saving grace appeared. We see uh, what happened. We have some details about this. Hebrews 2.14. Since then the children share in flesh and blood. That's speaking of, of people with flesh and blood, right? He himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise also partook of the same. That term partook speaks of taking on something that's not naturally yours. God the Son, fully God, took on a nature that was not naturally his nature. He took on human flesh. That's the incarnation. Partook of the same that through death he might render powerless or impotent him who has the power of death that is the devil. And he might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give hope to, help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of, of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That term propitiation means satisfaction. The son being God, who is not by nature flesh and blood, took on flesh and blood, yet without sin. 
2,000 years ago, God did the most incredible thing. Uh, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God took on human flesh. We have the tremendous reality that, uh, and we see this in Philippians chapter 2, have this attitude in yourselves which was in Christ Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Hebrews 2.9 reveals that he was made for a little while lower than angels like us, right? 30 years, lower than angels. What humility. God the Son uh, took on human flesh, became a baby, and grew up. This is what we call the incarnation. This is what we call Christmas, right? Now, sometimes this can be confusing, but before the incarnation, before he took on human flesh, he was fully God and expressed it fully, Jesus Christ. And during the incarnation, although he's fully God, he became fully man. Jesus Christ didn't become a new person on that Christmas morning, the first Christmas morning. God took on human flesh. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and yes, forever. Okay, he's the same. Two distinct natures, uh, fully God and fully man, working in perfect harmony and unison. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same. The amazing reality, as God, he sustained the world. He holds all things together. As man, he was able to suffer death on our behalf. As God, he existed for all eternity and does exist for all eternity. As man, he entered into the realm of human time and suffering. As God, he was able to give infinite value to his work. As man, he was also to repre- able to represent the human race before the justice of God, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God taking our sins upon him. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood, he also partook of the same. And the term of same here means in the same manner. How are you, uh, how did you come into the human race? You were born, right? So, so was he. In the exact same way, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, Galatians. The Gospel of Luke shares the account of him taking on human flesh. And I shared this before, but I'll read it again, Luke chapter 2. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quinarius was governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph went up from Galilee to, from the city of Nazareth to Judea in the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. We know from the Gospel of Luke and from Matthew that this was that that this was the virgin who would conceive of the Holy Spirit in her womb, and therefore the child born would be called the Son of God. God took on human flesh, and so the grace of God has appeared; it has shined forth, and that happened over 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ took on human flesh and came upon the scene of his own creation 
taking on human flesh. But why did his saving grace need to appear? Why? Turn to Isaiah 53 for a moment. And as you're turning there, I'll give you a little um, context. The book of Isaiah was written 700 years before the birth of Christ by the prophet Isaiah, inspired by the Spirit. The subject of the book is the restoration of the created order, which comes through judgment and salvation. That's what Isaiah is about, the restoration of the created order, which will be culminated in the restoration of the kingdom of God. Isaiah reveals that God will judge the nations and unbelieving Israel. He reveals redemption will come through Babylon, Cyrus, a type who is of the Messiah to come. And then he reveals there would be a suffering servant uh, who would uh, bring forth and we would need to acknowledge our sin and he would die for our sins. And there's an, there's an invitation to everyone in Isaiah. Isaiah 55, and I'll read this for you. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine, milk without money, without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? And he'll say later on, seek the Lord while he may be found. There's a window of time when the gospel is being presented to you that you have to respond. And I pray you do not reject it in unbelief and allow Satan to harden your heart through your unbelief. There's a window of time to respond to God's saving grace revealed in the gospel. So why did Jesus come? Why Christmas? Why would God need to appear on the scene? Verse 4 of Isaiah 53, Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Speaks of the sickness and pain and agony associated with sin that he bore, we say. Matthew 8 talks about that. Yet we see in the end of verse 12, yet he bore the sin of many. Bore the sin of many. He bore it all. We see in 1 Peter 2.24 that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins. He bore them in his body on the cross. Yet Israel just just rejected him. They, they considered him smitten, stricken of God. They didn't see it rightly. They didn't understand. Do you understand? They didn't believe the message. Do you believe the message? Yet it gets worse. Not only did they not understand, they crucified him. Verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The term pierced through speaks of a piercing wound that is fatal. And why was he pierced through? For our transgressions. Because of our sin, he was crushed for our iniquities. Hold your place in Isaiah 55 and turn to Psalm 22. In this psalm, we have uh, what we would call a messianic psalm because it points to uh, what Christ would do. It points to situations and circumstances that he would even repeat that applied to him. That applied to him. Psalm 22, verse 14, I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shared, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And thou dost lay me in the dust of death. This is what the Lord is saying prophetically here, but what he would say on the cross. What happened to him when he was pierced through. 
For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers have encompassed me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. That means it's pretty painful, okay? A band of evildoers, it says, or they, they look at and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. We know from uh, Acts 2.22 that Jesus the Nazarene, Peter says, a man attested to you by, by God with miracles and wonders and signs performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. By the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it's impossible to be held by his power. He was pierced through for our transgressions. So why would God the Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, uh, leave his heavenly glory uh, to be mistreated by his own creation, to be despised and forsaken, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, one from whom men hid their face. Why would he do this? Why would God be pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities? Why Christmas? Because of our sin. Because of our sin. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 59, he says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, neither his ear so dull that he cannot hear. It's not that he can't save, he can save. But your iniquities have caused separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sin separates us from God. The wages of sin is death. And people experience uh, the, the, the consequences of sin, whether it's a pri- pride or, or depression or anger or whatever it might be. They experience that. Because of separation from God, the wages of sin is death. We see that separation from God because of sin, it's death. In Romans 3, 9, quoting the Old Testament, Paul says, There is none righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Do you realize that Jesus came because of our sin? That's why he came. He came because you're a sinner. He came because I'm a sinner. He came because his creation is fallen. He came because we're sinners. Now, why would he die for us? Why would he die for our sins? Very simply, he died in our place to deliver us from judgment, to bring salvation. The saving grace of God has come. Back in Isaiah, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. Verse 5, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. The term chastening speaks of punishment. The punishment of God fell on him. For our well-being, the term well-being here is shalom, for our peace. You see, Isaiah shares later on in 57, verse 21, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. No matter what you say, no matter how much you say your life is fine, you don't have peace. You can have everything you ever wanted, and you will not have God's peace. And you see this, people who have everything uh, giving up their lives. 
committing suicide, whatever. You have people who have nothing doing the same thing. You have people who have no peace, who are hopeless because of sin. Because of sin. There's no peace for the wicked. But when our sin is taken care of, we have peace. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. You see, you're at enmity with God right now if you're in your sins. And God has to do something about your sins because he's a righteous God. But he sent his son instead and he bore our sins in his body in your place. And if you trust in Jesus Christ, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved and his work will be applied to you and you will be declared righteous. And then you'll have peace with God. Peace with God. God's peace. Peace in your relationship because sin's out of the way. And peace in practical reality because the fruit of a relationship with him is love, joy, peace. Jesus said, my peace I leave with you, not as the world leaves. Jesus Christ, Ephesians 2.14, he himself is our peace. He is our peace. So in the end of 5, we see by his scourging we're healed. It is through his stripes, his wounding, his bruising, his scourging, the suffering that culminated in death for sin that brings healing First Peter 2.24 again. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you are healed. You're healed. We all have a terrible, terrible, eternally deadly disease. We are sinners and we are destined for, uh, we are destined for punishment if we do not trust in Jesus Christ. So why Christmas? Why would God the Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, leave his heavenly throne to be mistreated by his creation, to be despised, forsaken, uh, to be one like men hid their face? Why would he be pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities? Why would he die for us? Well, it's really summarized uh, in verse 6 of Isaiah 53. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned his own way. So that's the problem. You turned your own way. You went in your sins and you're suffering for it and you're going to suffer eternally for it. But Jesus came and died for our sins. That's why. Because we've gone our own way. He says here, each one has turned his own way. We all like sheep have strayed. But what was God's response? Leave you alone, let you go your own way to destruction. No, he loved us so much he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life or everlasting life. That's God's response to our sinful condition. That's a gracious response. The saving grace of God has appeared. Jesus is the saving grace of God. People need saving grace. You might need it. And those of us who've had it, and who have trusted in Christ, who have it. We need to praise him for what he has saved us from, by his grace. Why would he do so? We know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I mentioned that earlier. It's love. We know that God demonstrates his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. We know in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son into the world uh, to be the propitiation for our sins, to satisfy God's wrath for our sin. 
He went through everything for us while we were yet sinners. What love. Do you get it now? For the grace of God has appeared. God's saving grace has appeared. It's that which brings salvation to all men. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. It is through Jesus Christ who died for our sins. And that's what Christmas is about, being saved from our sins. Being saved from our sins. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Tremendous. Tremendous. Turn to Luke 2 again. Luke 2. Verse 8. And in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. Verse 10 of Luke 2. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That's what Christmas is about. The message of Christmas is about the love and grace and truth of God manifest in sending Jesus Christ to die for our sins, to take our punishment upon him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How are you doing? Are you empty? Are you burdened? Are you heavy laden? Is this life crushing you? Is it crushing you? Do you have peace? What you need to do today is to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess your sin. Believe in him. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And you will have eternal life. And you will have peace and joy. Yes, there's trouble, but there's peace and joy. And you will have eternal life. And life's crushing loads will be removed from you. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without cost, without money. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and wages for what does not satisfy? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Today is the day of salvation. If you have not turned to Jesus Christ, turn to him now and be saved. Lord Jesus, save me and you will be saved. What about us believers who have turned to Jesus already? Have we forgotten what Christ has done for us? We haven't forgotten the facts, but have we forgotten practically speaking? How much he loves us? How much he understands. He, he, he's a merciful, faithful high priest. Confess and walk with him. Praise him and worship him. Then you'll remember that love came down. Love came for you. And glorify and praise him. Luke 2.20, And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen just as it had been told them. 
we should be praising and glorifying God more than anyone else. That's what we should be doing this Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and, and honor you, Lord God, for what you have done through your Son. Thank you that your saving grace has shone upon us and that through your Son Jesus alone we have salvations from sins. We are saved from our sins and we have a relationship with you. Father, I pray for anyone hearing this now or anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord God, that they would turn from their sin to your son Jesus and call upon him for salvation. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Father, I pray for those of us who know you because of your grace, that we would exalt you and praise you for what you have done for us, your saving grace having appeared to bring us salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.